0: Welcome back, it's time for Customers Who Click. I'm super excited about this episode as today I had the pleasure of chatting with Jeremy Epperson. He's someone I've followed on LinkedIn for a few years now and has had huge impact on the way I think about CRO. Jeremy is the Chief Growth Officer at Conversion Advocates and today we'll be exploring customer journey mapping and the tools and techniques that you can use yourself whether you've got one or 10 years experience. There's loads of fantastic actionable advice. So if you've been unsure about customer journey mapping or felt overwhelmed by some of the agency produced reports you've seen in the past, then this is the episode you need to listen to. Let's get Jeremy on now. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for joining me today. Um, would you mind introducing yourself? Tell us a bit about what,
1: what you're up to at the moment. Yeah. Hey, Will, thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm super excited about doing this with you. So I am the chief growth officer at Conversion Advocates. We're a full-service conversion rate optimization agency. We also do marketing, customer research, customer journey mapping, which I know we'll be talking about today. And the big thing is not only have I focused on conversion rate optimization, but because I'm a true data nerd, <laughs> we actually have catalogs, basically analyzed, observed, collected data, and then figured out from launching Ciro for 155 different growth stage startups, what are the things that stand out that like help improve performance on like a CRO program level. Awesome. Yeah, sounds great.
0: Well, I, I mean, obviously the, the starting point for this is what do you think is the biggest contributor to
1: growth for, for companies at the moment? So where, where are the opportunities for them? Yeah, so if you asked me this question maybe like six or 12 months ago, it probably would have been different than today. <laughs> a lot of things have happened. <laughs> so yeah, for direct and consumer uh, businesses, there's a couple things. One is data collection, how are we collecting data and how are we collecting data in an actionable way? So most digital marketers have tons and tons of quantitative data and mostly it's channel-based data, right? And that's what they're optimizing off of. So there's always been like kind of an under-indexing of qualitative data, like getting that underlying reason why and like understanding the customer journey and like speaking with customers and things like that. And I know we, both of us talk about that all the time, right? But I think now what used to be a luxury is now table stakes. And it's not because the industry has shifted our thinking per se. It's that it was forced on us. (laughs) So it's going to look different, right? So we're going to have to find alternative ways to collect data to get a better understanding of customers. And... The way I see that is we always are trying to get a 360 degree understanding of customers. So we need a number of different data sources, a number of different research methods. And as we pull those together, we need to be thinking in terms of like, how do we directly apply that to testing in channels, search, social email, but also with the onsite experience. And I think that's going to be the key going forward is not just like the ad hoc research itself, but like making that a part of the day-to-day practice and like operations of a business. Right, so how how would you recommend going about that? How,
0: looking at those different stages of the customer journey and I guess applying different research methods
1: and I suppose obviously quite crucially understanding what that research is telling you. Yeah, yeah. and that's where there's like a data collection, a data analysis and a data activation phase. So like all three of those, you can get stuck, right? I would say, because we want to make this like as actionable as possible for the people who are listening, you start with the things that are easiest for you to start with. So if you have more of a background in like content copy, then there's specific research methods like going and scraping from reviews. You're looking for like who the happiest and the most pissed off customers, <laughs> and, and you're seeing what they actually are struggling with, right? And then we can take that and we can translate that into copy that we put on a category page or a product page or messaging to reassure them in the checkout flow of this like problem that they perceive exists. If you're looking more on like the UX usability side, then you can do usability studies, and all you're really doing is giving somebody a couple tasks and looking over their shoulder. Can you find X products? Asking them questions about like how clunky the checkout is. I'm seeing how they navigate through the site. And then you can use that to test around user path or like how we structuring the way we're taking them from a homepage to the right product page. Is that based on best sellers? Is that based on like their use case? Is that based on some kind of like customer segment? So that's what we're doing is we're taking... We need to know, I think, I don't know if this is what you're asking or not, but when you go into research, (laughs) you need to know what you're trying to accomplish with it, right? So like, if we're trying to solve these three to five problems in the next 90 days, then we're going to attach the research method to the thing we're trying to solve for. So that helps simplify things. And my big tips are like, do that. First of all, what's the problem? What are we trying to get out of it? Then when you conduct the research, you already know what you're looking for. And the second thing is don't overwhelm yourself. You know, don't don't try to make this burdensome. Yeah,
0: I mean, I I like what you said at the start as well about basically playing to your strengths, right? If you're really good at copy, you've got good copywriters and that's been a, a core focus for you, then yeah, work out how you can improve that copy further. If you've got development resource and you think there are some technical issues with the website, go identify them, get the, get your developers to fix them. And then yeah, you're right. Having goals and knowing what you actually want to get out of the feedback is really important because otherwise you you can put an exit intent up on the website and just kind of leave it running and it will just run on every page. But you can also stick it specifically in your checkout and then you're getting feedback just on the checkout and you're, you're not, if you scan through that feedback, it's all about the checkout. You're not having to worry about seeing uh, feedback that's related to different pages. And also with user testing, right? If you've got nothing in mind and you just say to someone, can you just find a product and make a purchase, you might get some good feedback, but it's it's not going to be in depth. It's not really going to, it's probably not going to be game-changing
1: for you. Yeah. And that's, yeah, all of this is structuring research everybody overthinks it. Like you can go to a number of different sources and be like, how do I like Norman Nielsen group is like the usability insight place. And has been for 20 years or something. You can go on there and be like, okay, what, how do I pick five tasks for a user to run through? Right. And like, you can find all that documentation. So I don't, this is something I've struggled with. And I'd actually like to get your thoughts on this because this is probably something you struggle with too, but I'm not, I don't understand why marketers don't think this is a part of their job. I think it's because it's not in the job description, right? Like if you're a marketer, if you like do paid search, then like doing a usability study is absolutely not your job, but it can like help you, right? Or like, so I don't know, I don't know what you've seen on that, but like, it's frustrating to me because it's like, there's these roadblocks and like, these things are simple. Like some people in the industry overcomplicate them, but they're simple and they're straightforward and they don't take much time. But I'm just wondering why people get stuck so much. I wonder if,
0: right so, so there's two things, two issues I think there are, right? Uh, firstly, you get a lot of marketers who they graduate, they go into an agency and they get taught how to use a platform, right? They don't get taught how to be a marketer and marketing, they get taught how to use Facebook ads manager.
1: Or Google ads, or, yeah. Or, or email, or, yeah, Clavio, right? so, yeah,
0: So, you know, they might have some idea of what they're doing, but it's more of a, this is how to set up ad, ad campaigns this is how to find keywords but less of the like in depth kind of i guess problem solving and if this isn't working what should we do where do we need to go to fix this and a lot of the time it's well let's change the creative let's change the copy let's change our keywords or whatever when actually yeah it could just be the website's rubbish right yeah <laughs> you know, exactly it's usually this cuz we're fantastic yeah but because the website's not doing its job the people on the ad side go, well, it must be the ads that's the problem, or more likely, it's someone even even further up saying Facebook's not performing. You need to sort sort it out, and that's where I think the second problem comes in. Teams are generally siloed. Teams have their targets, and quite often, quite you know tough tough targets. So it's, I, I guess, it's a case of I don't have time to go and do research on why aren't people converting on the website or what do people think about our products? Because I just need to be working out how to optimize our ads and how to write new copy and assess which campaigns are performing and why I think they're performing and and just really focus on the ads. So I think that's where the two problems are. It's a lack of actual marketing expertise in the acquisition channels and and
1: just targets and, I guess, strategy and management, really. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean there's multiple problems there, right? But it's like it's got to be something that shifts, right? Because the that's not going to work anymore. Like like businesses are going to struggle if they don't figure some of these things out. You also brought something something up that I haven't thought about in a while, but the first like phase or two, like the first generation of digital marketers all came from direct sales. They like knocked on people's doors and like sold pans and stuff or like sold life insurance. Like my first job was selling life insurance to business owners. I was 20 years old. I mean, I literally, I didn't have facial hair at the time either. So I looked like a baby, (laughs) but, but I learned how to sell and I wasn't very good at it. And it was a struggle, but like the way that I conceptualize all of marketing is we're selling to another human being who's sitting on the other side of the screen. But that's not how digital marketing is thought about because you can go get a digital marketing degree at a university. Like you just said, like, I don't even think about that. I didn't realize like people could do that. That's like a new thing now, (laughs) but yeah, it's different. Right. Cause you're not thinking about it as like, a sales tool, you're thinking about it as like creative assets or like bid management. And that's just not what we're doing. Like the channel doesn't matter. It's the message, like how we pitch them and get them to like take action and buy.
0: Yeah. And it's understanding, also understanding why different channels perform in different ways, right? It's understanding why does PPC convert better than Facebook ads? Right. And it's quite obviously because on PPC, people are searching for your product or your, or your service or your content. And on Facebook, it's you putting your content in front of them. So obviously that there's lower intent for those people, but that still seemed to be missing generally. I mean, I I think I've benefited from the fact that I started, I actually started in sales as well. I was selling a a voucher code platform. So trying to get local stores onto a a geo-based voucher platform. So you could open the app up, You'd see that round the corner, you've got twenty percent off at a restaurant. So you go. But I moved from there into a quite a general marketing role, and so I got to work with SEO, email, PPC, social. I'm still work okay. with the sales guys. So I got to understand all those different channels. Whereas I think a lot, of, most people go channel specific, and never really have that opportunity
1: to understand how different channels work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that is like how the marketing like industry in general is shaped up. I just think when I, one of the activities I do with teams, like the client teams that I work with is I will get the marketing team. I'll like lock them in a room <laughs> with somebody from the sales team. And like, we're basically pinging them with questions. So like, I mean, it depends like with e I like, I work, I'm like, like business agnostic. Right. So like, sometimes this is different, but that could be customer service. It could be, it could be anybody who has different touch points than the marketing team. And we're basically just asking them like, what are you seeing? That's different than what we're seeing. And like, you can just see like the light bulb go off and they're like, wow, I would have never thought of that. Like, I would have never thought that like there's this like issue that we have with this particular product and that's, what's causing returns on it. And like, we need to be dealing with that upfront in the marketing. Like how do we overcome that objection or how do we explain it away? Or like, how do we sell past that? It's, that's the way that I think about like selling online essentially, is like, how do we find those issues? I call them conversion roadblocks. We're trying to pinpoint what are the conversion roadblocks and then eliminate them to the best we can. Yeah. And who was talking about this? Johnny.
0: Longdon. Yes. Yeah. He's UK it,
1: based. Yeah.
0: I think it was a post today actually about how CRO is not about, no, it wasn't, who was it? Basically, it, it was this idea that CRO is not just about conversion rates. It's also about, you can apply conversion. If you remove the conversion piece, I guess that makes more sense, right? It's all about optimization. That's what CRO is all about. It's not just the conversion rate on the website. It's also, well, how do we reduce returns? And how do we get people activated on a product better? To me, that all kind of fits in within the CRO piece. But, you know, when business owners come along and say, oh, I need help with conversion rate uh, CRO, it generally is the the conversion rate optimization. But that's, and that's where I think it all ties into that marketing piece of what are all the different touch points? Because even, if, so in my opinion, customer service almost kind of fits into marketing, really, because yeah. they're the ones speaking to customers on a day-to-day basis they've got the ability to make people really happy also piss them off so they've got the ability (laughs) to to fix problems and then work with the business to uh, ensure that problem is fixed for everyone on an ongoing basis and answer those questions right so all all the every time you get someone saying getting on live chat and saying how much is shipping or what's your returns policy that customer service person should be saying to both the marketing team or or the, the product team or whoever and saying well everyone keeps asking this. Why isn't it on the website? Let's make it more obvious.
1: And yeah, there just needs to be this. Everyone needs to be feeding into everything really. And the, and this is part of the the CRO naming wars to some extent of like, what do we call the thing? Because it's not, if we look at conversion rate optimization from a myopic lens of, we're trying to technically tactically change stuff on a website, then that's guaranteed to underperform versus taking a more holistic approach. And the reason I know that I can say it with confidence, like I have very strong takes on this. (laughs) I'm constantly (laughs) ranting about this. We do CRO maturity assessments. So I've done over 250 and then I stopped counting, but we're basically gauging how sophisticated is a CRO program? Where are they in their journey as far as like how good they are at CRO and how much ROI they're producing from it. and there's basically 33 factors that we rank them on. And we've like, I've played with the amount of factors it is. And like, it used to be huge. And then it was like, not enough to like get the full picture, but that's what we see a lot is the perception of CRO and what it is supposed to be within a business has a dramatic impact on the overall ROI you're going to get out of CRO over any 12 month window. And we definitely have to start thinking differently about it, right? Like yeah. That's why I've pushed so hard on you know, most, there's not a whole lot of CRO people that are like doing end-to-end customer journey mapping is like a core portion of like what they offer as like a consulting firm. Right. But I can't imagine it doing it any other way because if you don't do it like that, you're setting the wrong expectations right up front. Somebody could come to a CRO agency and be like, Hey, we need development resources to help set up some tests. Here's some ideas we have well, you've already screwed yourself (laughs) because you're starting the wrong way, right? You're not even thinking through the right mental model of like what needs to happen. And that's going to have like negative repercussions. Yeah. But then you, uh, yeah,
0: if you're not taking that whole end-to-end customer journey view as well, then you end up kind of going down that route of, well, we might just, might as well just stick a discount on the website because that's going to improve conversion rate. Right. And if I, If it's not my job to care about the rest of it, then yeah, I don't care about your average order value, your returns rates. I'm just going to stick stuff on the website that makes you look like the best company in the world with a (laughs) life-changing product, even if it's rubbish. But then your, your conversion rate might go through the roof, but your returns are going to go up. You're not going to have returning customers and then that's bad for the company. So I think, yeah, you, ha- you have to look at that, maybe not end-to-end piece, but at least a couple of steps further down the line to make sure that people, I mean, the way I w- always describe it is uh, making sure people are converting for the right reason.
1: Yeah, yeah, and absolutely.
0: They're, uh, and they're they're convinced that the product is the right product for them and that it's going to do what they need it to do and that the company is the right company to buy that product from. And if you can answer those two questions, then you should get the the correct conversion and not just someone who's saying, oh, well, you've emailed me a 50% discount code. I might as well just give it a go.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, we're on different time zones. It's it's pretty early morning for me here. Um, Bringing up discount codes. I feel like you're just trying to ruin my Friday, man. (laughs) (laughs) You know how strongly I feel about this (laughs) with the profit margin, but yeah, yeah. It's a bad, it's, it's a bad way to go. Like it's one lever, right? And if you think about, Or tools in a toolbox is like another analogy, right? Like discounting price is one tool. There are literally hundreds of tools and things you can optimize. It's the worst thing that you can do, and I I say it's like it's being a lazy marketer, right? There's so many other things that you can do for optimization's sake. Um, But one thing that you just like brought to mind for me is like the concept of I don't know. Actually, we can move on. I know we have a like a number of questions to work through. (laughs) No, go on. This
0: sounds interesting.
1: Go on. Yeah, why, why not? Yeah. So, so you're Talking about one point. No, I think I just forgot it. (laughs) Oh, with the customer journey mapping. With the customer journey mapping, we have like, I have a four phase model because I'm trying to simplify what a customer journey map looks like. Most of the industry that does customer journey mapping, it's about like, let's use the super expensive enterprise software. Let's spend tons of time on this. Like, let's kind of drag this out for months, kind of building these static personas and this 77 touch points. The real life marketer on a day-to-day basis can't even use that it's outside of scope, right? Because you're like, I'm managing this channel and it's only one touch point. It can help them see the 50,000 foot view, but it's not actionable. So like, if you hand a marketer something and they can look at a a pretty slide that has personas on it and they're like, what do I do with this? Then nothing's gonna happen, right? So like, we try to simplify this and break it down into like one, the first phase is like, they're coming from a channel, they're landing on a site we're optimizing that phase. Like that's very close to a marketer, right? Because they're managing the channel and like they have influence over like if you're putting them from like a shopping ad onto a product page, then there's like a continuity there and they have like input on that and they can like control maybe or or definitely influence that. But I definitely want to think about it like these discrete phases of like, we don't need to be crazy with like there's seven touch points and we need to have the attribution perfect. And like, that's not even a thing anymore. So like, like we have to simplify things down to like what can we take action on this week that's what really matters because that's what's going to drive better performance on the ad side and like increased revenue on the website yeah and i think uh, this is going to lead
0: quite nicely into to the next question really but i mean I, i've seen this happen i've seen these big kind of brand market research pieces that have taken six to nine months to produce and then they get presented to the company and everyone basically sits there going that's nice, but what do we do with this? What's the actionable stuff? And then for smaller businesses in particular, if you have seen one of those documents and then you're thinking, well, if we want to understand the customer journey, we've got to do a nine-month project. That sounds really, it sounds too much. It sounds like overbearing. It's where do I start? We can't afford an agency to do it. So where do we even start with this? So yeah. how would you advise people get into this? What is the like simplest, easiest, maybe cheapest uh, way to do research into
1: these different touch points
0: or different stages? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to
1: admit that I am guilty of that, not from a branding perspective, like a data-driven approach, but like selling the super fancy, use the $8,000 like tool. Like I've done that. That's like part of my background, right? As like a consultant, because that's what I did is like marketing and customer research for so long. But yeah, like I used to push on let's do the fanciest thing. Cause that's what I want, right. As a researcher and as like a marketer and as like an optimizer, yeah. but yeah, like I had to swing to the other end of the spectrum because I realized like people are getting stuck and it's like, why are we doing this? Like what is customer journey mapping for if we can't do it and activate it and like make money off of it. So, yeah. So I break it down into four phases So there's a landing experience. There's the on-site experience, which is all the usability, user path, messaging. There's the conversion experience, which I think is important to isolate by itself that's for an ecom business. That's like you're on a product page, you're moving to cart, you're pulling out your credit card and you're ready to buy this thing. That's a, that's the highest friction point, right? And like customer acquisition. So getting them to make that first purchase um, when they may or may not have all the information they want. So we want to like study that and optimize against that specifically. And then there's the customer experience that i just bucketed into like, there's one whole phase here and that's repeat purchases and LTV and How do we get them to come back and buy again based on like the experience they've previously had? So a couple of cool things about this. And I have some of these realizations just in like the last two years is if we pull research or testing results from any part of the customer journey, we can apply that back to any other part of the customer journey. So I'm I'm going to give some concrete examples. So for one client recently, Ecom client, we sent out a post-conversion survey. So they've purchased the product. The product hasn't arrived yet right? So like we're hitting them right there at the point of sale. What we're asking them is like basic things like what did their journey look like? Why did they purchase from us? What are their competitors that they look at? We're getting like discrete pieces of information for them to look backwards on their journey and explain what that looked like. But we're capturing it digitally. So a digital marketer can do this because you just pop it on a website. And then we can take those insights and we can tie them back to landing pages, the homepage, category pages, product pages, because we're giving them the information that they needed earlier in the journey, essentially. Yeah. So one of the things that we ask, like, I don't do this as much anymore because like the data quality is is variable, but you know, like we ask them basically like what almost prevented you from buying? We like word it differently, but you know, that gives us some of that friction point, right? So like all we're trying to do, I think from a digital marketing perspective, the voice of customer the actual like open-ended responses or anytime we can see how a customer articulates something or like a site visitor articulates something that's way richer insights than understanding what the point of abandonment is. And like, I think, that's the I think, stuff that marketers need. Yeah. I, I think a lot of, a lot of people
0: are kind of scared of going down the qualitative route because they think it's going to take ages to assess it all. And actually, I, or maybe I'm used to doing it, but you know, I I can scan through a, a CSV document now and just pick out the interesting points. I can tell which comments are like rubbish and, and a bit pointless. Yeah. And, I, and I can <laughs> see the ones that are just really interesting and, and just phrase something in a certain way that makes you stop and think about it and go, OK, I hadn't thought about it like that. That's really interesting. But
1: yeah, it, it really doesn't take as long as people think it does. And let's like, I I can quantify this specifically because this is part of like our hours tracking, like of running a research team, right? Like we have to get whittle things down to the point where it's like, this is the least amount of hours for the highest impact we can possibly have. So like you're talking about, you tag a, a survey or polling tool on a website that takes five minutes, right? Like you set up a polar survey that takes 10 minutes. Maybe you should put more thought into it about the, like the question format, but we have a question bank that we're pulling from. So it's like problem X, you know, question X that matches that. And then you're basically letting that run until you hit a sample size. So on an exit intent poll, you, you want a sample size of like a minimum of a hundred. So we're not skewing our thinking. The two fifties better, like more is better, but at a certain point there's a diminishing rate. So if we're looking in that range of responses, the analysis time is, extract all the stuff that's nonsense, just cut it out of that like Excel file. Then we're going to categorize that into buckets. And it's kind of a messy process of like, I think this is what they're getting at, right? Like this is a purchasing terms issue. This is a misunderstanding of feature issue, right? And we're bucketing that out. And I cap that to 90 minutes to two hours at most. And that's like, if you're really going deep on it, right? And then it's a matter of like spinning that up and being like, we know what the four buckets are. Here's the, the three to seven things that we need to focus on. And then all we're doing is we're workshopping the way we come up with hypotheses based on that. Cause there's a value in having multiple, like I can do it by myself. You can do it by yourself. Any researcher can, but there's a value to having multiple people have their input. Yeah. Cause what we're doing is, okay, here's like, this is real life. Look behind the curtain, like for a CRO agency team. It's like, I think, hypothesis X. And you go, wait a second. No, I think hypothesis Y. And I'm like, okay, since you said that hypothesis Z, so we're building this like backlog of like different hypotheses and variations based on that. So you can, that's going to require a couple more people. So you have like two, three, four people involved in that. You spend 45 minutes to an hour doing that. And like, now you have enough tests to run a quarter of AB test on a, on an e-com site, just from that one research method. Yeah. And it's yeah i like the idea
0: of workshopping because it's important to have people challenge your ideas as well even if someone doesn't have their own hypothesis to put forwards if they can challenge yours and ask you like why do you think that why something i picked up from developer friends is like constantly asking why are we doing that why do you think that and it takes about five i think it's it's normally about five whys to get to the actual answer
1: of what this change is going to do or what this hypothesis really is. That's interesting. So one of the things that I push my team on, we have these heuristics within the business. It's like rules that we live by and ways we approach business. And one of the things is if you come up with a hypothesis, you have to create at least three more hypotheses based on that. What are the other angles, right? So if the abandonment is lack of value perception, There's not one, you know what I mean? It could be like, it could be price sensitivity. It could be, they don't understand it. So we start packaging those things together. And there's so many benefits of this from a CRO perspective. Like one is the quality of the hypotheses increases almost exponentially because your first idea is never your best idea. And this concept of like challenging, like you're talking about, like you dig into, and maybe that number is five. Maybe my number should be five. Maybe it shouldn't be three, but, but it increases the quality and you end up testing things different Differently than you previously would. And you also end up refining exactly how you're going to technically implement that variation because you're talking through the details at a deeper level. So, as a marketer, if you have a developer, if you have a copywriter, designer, developer that's helping you with this, the clearer we can get with that, the more targeted that test is going to be. And the more we're going to be able to isolate what the insights and learnings and recommendations will be after. We see the results of that test. So again, just trying to get into more like, here's the the typical processes within a real CRO team and like how that would apply to a digital marketer. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, afterwards, depending on the result of the
0: test, you know, you, you'll obviously sit down and think, right, why did this test work? Why did it not work? Where do we go from here? And that can then impact on those other hypotheses as well. So if you've got, you, know, you might have two experiment ideas that are quite different and you pick one because you think actually this is gonna be the higher impact one, the result of that might then mean you say, well, let's go back to this other hypothesis, And say, well, maybe this isn't correct now, but the idea there is still, is still there's something there. So how do we then adapt that
1: uh, to move forward? So, yeah. And that, that's another point too. So like at each of these touch points in the CRO process, so when we're doing post test analysis like okay here's a 7% lift in add to carts whatever when we see those test results we're going back and doing that workshopping type test ideation thing again right so now it's like okay we have this result and somebody's like okay we should run test A because of this right like because of this test one we should double down on this but again it's like okay there's not just one way to test based on these new test results that we have So, again, we're going two, three, four, five. And you can see, like, in a 90 day window, because this is what we focus on. We focus on helping teams launch CRO from scratch. They've never done it before. We're trying to get them onboarded in 90 days and have basically them set up to be successful long term with CRO. So, some of the biggest problems are like, we don't know what to test. And the reason they don't know what to test is either, yeah, some of it is like research, but some of it is they're just not spinning up enough variations. Like, you need hundreds of test ideas, not. A handful of test ideas because again it increases the quality and like the sophistication of the hypotheses but also it gets the team thinking deeply and going through that process is just as valuable if not more arguably than like any winning test
0: yeah yeah you're right you know that if you come up with 10 ideas and they're the first idea to fix one particular issue then you've got you, know, you might have some good ideas in there but you know likelihood is they're just okay tests but they don't really go deep into the problem they're quite, they're almost uh, probably a little bit better than sticking a plaster on the problem but you know it's a starting point so yeah if if you are forced to come up with three maybe maybe five different versions or different ideas for how to fix this problem you know after the first one you're thinking well no that's that's not going to do the job What's a different angle? And you kind of go one step deeper. And then on that third, for the third one, you've got to say, well, these two ideas are gone. I can't think about these anymore. What's this other, how, why else might be people having, Might people be having this problem? And it's, yeah, it's going to get deeper and deeper. And then I guess hopefully that third or, or fifth or however many, ever, however many you do is going to be the best
1: one. But I suppose it doesn't, it doesn't quite work like that, does it? And yeah, and I, I want to tie this back to what are we trying to accomplish here right like we're trying to drive roi on zero we're also trying to accelerate growth rate so what i found from like a, a program level perspective we take it from like here's individual tests and how we're like spinning up variations and we pull it back up to this like program level team-based level what are the biggest roadblocks that we've found like one of them is we don't know what to test and one of the solutions to that is follow this process that we just discussed because you're spinning up more variations at every one of those touch points in the CRO process. And like, when you have a hundred tests, then you don't get stuck scratching your head on a Wednesday going, we don't know what to test next. So we don't have a test live for another 10 days after that. Right. So like efficiency in CRO, the process, like I hear all the time that I'm like the CRO process guy now, which I never (laughs) intended per se, but this is all about the process, right? It's about isolating these roadblocks in the things that where teams get stuck and that's one of the biggest that's at the top of the pile is like we don't know what to test and you're like you don't need to have 15 years of customer research experience to work through this effectively right like you just need to follow the right process and those are some of the process things that like solve for those problems right so our what we're shooting for in a 90-day window is creating 150 data-driven hypotheses And you can't possibly test that in a year. Even if you're like a really high traffic, like e-comm site, there's still a limited amount of time. And the way stats work is you have to run tests for a certain amount of time and you have to extrapolate tests across category pages, product pages, et cetera. Um, So you only have a finite amount of space, right? So if we're only going to knock out, let's say 52 tests in a year, then 150 hypotheses is too many, but you're going to scratch some of those. They're never going to get tested and like prioritization. But what we don't want to do is get stuck. Because CRO is all about time and traffic. And those are not renewable resources <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> once they're gone, right? Yeah. I mean, if you've got
0: if you've got a list of tests, then worst case scenario, you end up going back and testing one of the options that has sat there on that list for a little while because you've had these other priorities and you've been thinking, well, this is going to be a higher impact test, so is this. If you do start running low on ideas, you've still got you've still got a backlog of all those ideas. Whereas yeah, if you have a, a weekly brainstorming session to come up with one test idea, then yeah, you end up in a situation where you, you run that test. And that might take, depending on traffic, obviously, it could take two, three weeks to really get an answer on that test. And then people say, well, okay, what are we t- testing next? You've got to identify that test. You've got to build it. That c- that could take another two weeks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It will. Yeah, for most yeah. teams, depending on what it is, it takes longer. So. That's another roadblock. That's probably the second biggest roadblock for like getting started in CRO is like being able to efficiently get tests live. And there's only a couple of things you can do to solve for that. One is we have a huge backlog to draw from. And if we get stuck, like let's say we like, we want to run this fancy test on checkout and the developer goes, well, actually like we can't do that. That's not something that we could do in a checkout. And you're like, okay, as a digital marketer, I didn't know that because I'm not a developer. So you're stuck now. So now you're one test this week gets killed and you have nothing yeah no new test live right so if we're trying to maximize testing velocity we not only need a large backlog to draw from but you're gonna get stuck a lot and if we get stuck all we have to do is take that test and push it to next week's sprint and and we have a week to solve for it and then we're pulling in from that backlog right so like when we maximize the efficiency in that way, then like there's a direct positive correlation between like testing, increasing testing velocity and increasing ROI. So it's a matter of just like, how do we chip away at these process, workflow, communication, efficiency problems to make sure we're testing against that time and traffic, right? Because that is how we create high performing CRO programs. And most people are not thinking about the process side of it. They're just thinking about the testing side of it, which is a mistake.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, you mentioned communication and the developer example, right? The developer coming back and saying, well, we can't test that, so you're stuck. I think it's important to start these conversations early as well. Obviously, you don't want to overwhelm your development team by sending them 100 different tickets and saying, these are all the tests we want to run. Can you assess these all for technical capabilities and whether we can run them? But, you know, you could be picking one or two of the tests that you think are going to be a concern for them, and send those over and just say, look, can you just have a quick look at this? This is the idea. Can we test it? And
1: if they say yes, no. then you can just bring it back and say, well, we can have that up the priority list. And and this is another process-related thing for marketers specifically because there's very few, if any, marketers that have a development background. You have to have a technical yeah. resource for implementation, but also for vetting tests. So like that's built into the process. Is if we're going to send. Again, if you send one test to a developer and they go, we can't do that, well, you're stuck, right? If you send them five and you go, here's the things you want to ask them. One, what is the level of effort? How many hours do you have to put at this? Because most marketers don't know, right? So the difference between one development hour and 20 development hours is like nuanced things that they don't understand about how code works, right? So like you give them five options, they're going to kill two of them. You have three options left. Now you have a batch of tests that can be pushed forward through copy, design, development, QA, test. So that's another part of this, right? Is like tying back to at a program team level. Like it's just seeing those roadblocks most, I mean, like very few marketers like understand this level of detail of like the process of how zero works, but all of these are avoidable problems. And I've seen teams make the same mistakes over and over to the point where you're just like, here's the six roadblocks that you can run into around this thing, let's just skip past those. Let's just not allow those (laughs) to become problems in the first place. And you're going to be way happier and you're going to get better results and everybody's going to, it's going to be great. But if you don't know what the roadblocks are, then it's very easy in CRO to get stuck on these little things and it compounds on you. So like you can't get tests live and then you don't know what to test. And then like you get stuck because the designer spends 10 hours on something. And now the developer's like, I can't possibly develop this thing. It's just way too huge. So now we have to kill this test and the designer spent 10 hours. So these are all like process-related issues, but they're one hundred percent avoidable if you know what they are and then just work against them. Yeah, well, it comes back to what we were talking about at the start, really, about not being siloed
0: and working together with other teams and getting buy-in from other teams. Right? <laughs> if you, if the development team are aware that you're doing CRO and running tests and that they are going to be required to uh, at least assess tests initially, then that's going to be a lot easier than coming up with those test ideas. And then just sending an email to the development team saying, oh, can someone have a look at this? We want to run a test. And no one has any idea what you're talking about.
1: So you've yeah, got to get that, yeah. you know, that, that communication again well, and process. Yeah, Having a scrappy developer or engineer is one of the most valuable things in CRO that people underestimate because you can kick if we have really refined like clear test plans, then you can take that. If like you're the CRO or you're like the digital marketer who's kind of leading up this process, then you can take that and you can push it to a copywriter and then get the feedback. You can like make sure you tweak the design and things like that. So developers can do the work of like, okay, you've told me this is what you want to test, right? Like you want to like on a product page, we want to change the product description. You're like, okay, that's fine. Those are easy. But when you start getting into like feature-based things, like how are we going to filter and sort? Well, then you're getting into an area where like, A marketer doesn't know what the options are.
0: You know what I mean? Because there are limitations,
1: right? Like, what attributes do we have tied to specific SKUs? And what are the options that we can actually filter by? And sometimes that's like customers want it filtered by this factor, right? Like, they want to be able to filter by price or color or whatever that thing is. That can be a massive project or it can be a really simple thing. So, developers being involved, not just in the implementation aspect, But being pulled in enough, they can help with like showing options and creating more different variations and like letting you know what the level of effort is. Like, that's extremely valuable to have in a CRO team if you want to get great results. Yeah, also, I mean, I probably make this mistake a bit because I
0: I don't have technical backgrounds, but I've worked closely with developers enough and I've got friends who are developers. So we, we normally talk about various technical issues anyway. So I probably do fall into that mistake of, Uh, coming up with this test idea and kind of thinking it through and being like okay I think I understand how this would work to to, like technically and so I think developers can do it and then they might come back to me and say no that's crazy you you just can't do that (laughs) yeah (laughs) or or they, they could potentially come back and say well yeah that would work, but there's also just a really simple way of just doing this. Yeah, that's that's so, the value. Yeah. Uh, one, one example that I think probably would apply to, to a lot of businesses, right? So filling in forms, there's always compulsory fields. Right. So when you're at the CRO and you once and you say, Well, I don't think we need this compulsory field. How do we test getting rid of it? The initial thought is, well, we can't just hide the field because it's a it's compulsory. Yeah. So when we had the idea, well, why don't we just pass through uh, a generic result? That doesn't doesn't skew any any data that we might actually need. So if you're asking for gender, right, you don't just default everyone to male or everyone to female. You you just add in a third option and say NA or whatever, yeah. and then and then hide the field. And so for every single person, that just goes through as NA. But this is something I didn't really think about at first. All I thought was, well, we're going to have to work with the developers to remove potentially remove the compulsory element of the field but make it look like it still is compulsory for the people who are receiving the control version. But then that still doesn't work because there will still be people who miss the fact that it's supposed to be compulsory and don't
1: answer it on the on the control version. So yeah, it's- that's a thing too, where like developers can have great input. So like one problem that we had um, with with one business is like basically we looked in the analytics, we found it like almost universally They're only going to buy one product, even though that's a large SKU site, they're only going to buy one product and that's where they're going to start. And then they can come back and buy additional products in the future, but we just got to get them to one product, right? So if we're trying, if the customer's motivation and intent is I just want to buy one product and try it, and then I get comfortable with this company, and then I can come back and buy some of the other products. If that's the mentality, then we don't want to try to push them on upsells. We don't want to try to increase like average order value. Like all of those things are just going to actually like reduce our conversion rate, reduce our purchases and like reduce the amount of customers that we're actually acquiring and get getting that first purchase. Right. So what I said is to a developer, how do we just get them quickly and easily? Like we know they're only going to buy one thing. So let's remove all the friction. And he goes, okay, we'll just on this particular site, like you could click on the cart and it would drop down, like not a modal, but like a little like cart widget. And he goes, just let that persist. When they add something to cart, it just persists and it just sticks there until they click out of it (laughs) or until they move to the checkout. Yeah. As in the like continue shopping or go to checkout once you've clicked add to cart. Correct. And that, yeah, yeah, that pops down and it just stays there. So it's just prominent enough that you're like, wow, that's interesting. So it just pushed, it just nudged enough people over Instead of them going back and shopping and getting lost or getting confused because now they're trying to like choose from other products. We're just trying to get them to make that initial purchase. And we know they're going to come back and buy later. So don't make them do it all upfront. Reduce the friction in that process for that first sale. <laughs> and then think longer term about like LTV. Which is, is the opposite of what a lot of companies do. Because a lot of companies are saying, well, we want to boost that AOV.
0: Let's, you know, <laughs> when they click add to cart, let's have a pop-up with an upsell. When they're in mini cart, let's have another upsell. It actually reminded me, I had a conversation with a furniture company here last year or 2020, maybe. And they said that they found during the pandemic when they had to close their stores, they got a, an influx of single item purchases on the websites. And it, what was happening was because people couldn't go to the stores and view the products or test them, whatever, they were then making that single minimum order purchase from the website, to then experience the products and then if they were happy they would come back and buy the rest
1: oh that's fascinating yeah because that's yeah for some people like material and feel and construction quality and things like that it's hard to there's some things that are just harder to buy online <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mattresses <But it's>, like <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> yeah i just really like the fact that this company worked this out as well That
0: no <laughs> one kind of panics and said well our average order value has dropped massively what do we do they kind of looked at it. I, I imagine they did the research as well and found that that's what was happening because people couldn't go to the stores, couldn't experience the products. They were willing to still spend maybe 150, 200 pounds to get that first small product or like a know, side table or something, and then yeah, and then commit to the thousand pound, fifteen hundred pounds worth of other products that they would have bought in
1: store if they'd been able to see everything in one go. And- I think that's the perfect example of myopically thinking about how do we like smash and grab, right? Get the AOV up as much as we possibly can on the first purchase, right? That mentality comes through that lens of we're just trying to like just first time purchase, like just get them to buy now, like get them to buy in this session. And it's all symptoms of the underlying problem of like not thinking holistically about the customer journey, right? It's just tied to that. So it's, it's like short-term gain for long-term growth issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's also this feeling, and I've talked about this a lot,
0: but that retention tends to be a bit of a... Well, yeah, we know that people put a huge amount more effort into acquisition than they do retention.
1: The
0: vast majority of businesses do. Email automation just gets like set up and, and left to run. And so there is that focus on making sure that the first-time customers are the most valuable because we're only going to see a trickle of people coming back yeah. again. And it's almost like an acceptance of that. Therefore, we have to optimize that first purchase when you could be doing the opposite, like you were suggesting, and yeah. you know, get people through quickly and in a really like customer-friendly way, make them happy, and then they'll come back
1: uh, to buy the rest. I, there's a direct response copywriter that like probably most people in like this generation of digital marketers don't know, but should check out Dan Kennedy. I don't know if you're familiar. Okay. Yeah. He, yeah. he was like one of the guys who got me into marketing. Cause I just started reading all this stuff and like watching all the seminars. And like, I highly suggest that to anybody who's in like a marketing role, like a performance marketing role. He, he had this concept where he said, basically what you're doing with marketing is buying a customer. The first purchase is just a touch point in this journey, right? So like we shouldn't be getting all worked up about the stuff like the upsells, and the AOV and things like that, because what we're doing is building a relationship and that relationship you like you triggered this for me because you made a really good point there. It's like we're starting a relationship. Like this isn't one and done purchase. And if it is, your business growth is going to underperform. So if we switch that mental model to like, we're buying a customer, we're starting a relationship, we're not ending a relationship with a purchase, then that changes like the intraday, like decision-making and like the operations of what we're trying to accomplish with customer acquisition, because the the focus is different now. And, and yeah. it's like a really cool concept, but it's something that people don't think about very often.
0: Well, it's, it's basically a focus on lifetime value, isn't it? it, it a lifetime value instead, average order value or, or, first, or first purchase. I realize we be getting on of it. I, I do have another important question I want to ask you. If, you've got, if you could recommend maybe one or two things that people should go away and do now that maybe takes an hour to do in total to, in order to do some better research about on the customer journey, conversion
1: optimization, what would those yeah, one or two pieces be? Oh man, that's like uh, that's like choosing your favorite child. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's tough for me to answer that, but I'll do my best. It's tough for me to answer because the research method is tied back to what we're trying to solve for, and that problem is different for every business, right? Like, if you don't have a credibility issue, then you know you don't need to like push social proof stuff, right, or whatever. I would say like the one thing that I think could be most helpful is like the exit intent polling that we talked about, because it it like. It helps us understand why they're abandoning and for a digital marketer that's the easiest most applicable like like tied to thing that's tied to results right and it's also easy to do like you said it's not super complicated it's something you can do with no skills or experience you can still rip through it in like an unsophisticated way the other thing i think is important is it doesn't take as many skills but is helpful as session recordings So session recordings are really easy because most marketers, like once you drop them on the site, you're like, I'm done. Right. But it just gives you such good insights into like how people are actually behaving, like how they move through the site. What are they actually reading? Like how far they scroll down on like a product page? Like do they click on something on a category page, go to a product page, and then go back to the category page and they're flipping back and forth like that. It's just not in the wheelhouse of most marketers. So it like those two things I think can have the most dramatic impact on like how they perceive usability and how they perceive like content voice of customers. So that's what I would start with if you have like limited time and you can do both of those things for free and they don't take very much time at all. So yeah. Yeah. Like you say, hot job, you can set up hot job, run a, run a survey, set up session recordings.
0: Uh, I think you get about 300 recordings on the free plan. And then you can Which just is delete more than you're going to watch stuff. anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so actually that just made me think of something for the exit intent, uh, an example of something I've done, it actually links in with your, uh, you've got to come up with multiple hypotheses, right? Yeah. So uh, something that you'll, I think people do see in uh, in Hotjar. I'm sure you've seen it, right? Exit intents. What was the number one reason you didn't purchase today? Or what's the number one reason you're, you're leaving? Didn't don't know how much it will cost to ship. Don't know how fast shipping is. Or don't know what returns policy is and obviously when you're in the business and you're looking at your website almost every day or probably every day you're thinking to yourself well but it's clear right we have this message right at the top saying free delivery over 50 pounds or i know that it's in this spot on the product page and this feedback combined with session recordings heat maps kind of lets you that people aren't seeing these right like no one people aren't right. actually seeing these messages because you've stuck them in these locations like these banners at the top a lot of the time it's basically banner blindness, right? People just ignore them straight away. So what I did was I said, well, if people are complaining about not understanding shipping, let's make sure we have the shipping message above the call to action on a product page, right? So it's not underneath. They have to scroll past it. They have to see it on there as they're looking down the page. And then I thought to myself, well, we can take this one step further. Instead of saying you get free shipping over 50 pounds or 60 pounds, Why not? Let's just say if this product is fifty pounds or more, then that message just says you get free delivery, or free delivery. And if it's not above that threshold, then you say free shipping over fifty pounds or whatever. And that's been a really good test. It's worked really well because it's just it's getting that messaging in front of people. They're not and they're not having to think about it. They're not having to do any sort of calculation or they're not having to go check the price again (laughs) to see whether it's going to meet it. We're just saying, if you buy this product, you will get free shipping.
1: Yeah. That's a great point. Like, like I have this kind of joking phrase where if you make people do math online, then your conversion rate's going to suffer because they don't want to, right? Like the less friction, the better. Like we shouldn't be making them think like, we just need them to focus on like, I've made the right decision. Let's move forward with this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, in fact, one test we're about to run, is I think it's showing the saving. So if we have the price, the original price, the sale price, and it might have the percentage as well actually, we're either adding, yeah, I can't remember, I'll have to, I'll have to look up the test. Yeah, so yeah we're no either worries. adding the save 15 pound 63 or whatever, or, or we're switching that for the percentage. We might even do both actually, why not?
1: And, yeah. and this is back to the point that we were talking about, about the variations, right? Did we do a strikeout of the price? Do we do a percentage discount? Do we do a dollar discount? Like, because we only came up with one of those versus like multiple variations, right? Like we don't know which one's going to hit. We don't know which one is going to be like most valuable for our customers. So back to that concept of like, if you have the traffic spinning up a b c d variations or iterating through them if you don't have that level of traffic so you like you can do it in a linear fashion right but yeah it's uh, we got through a lot cool so, so just before we finish then is there anyone in the d2c marketing space that you'd like to go for lunch with lunch like out of people that i haven't met like somebody that i haven't met yeah i think i don't know i mean yeah, i've, I've met, I met so many i've met so many people that's like uh, uh, fair <laughs> enough. that's that's one of my favorite things that i've done in the last year is well, um
0: all right who would you recommend if, if, if listeners could go for lunch with one person and it was guaranteed lunch, who would you recommend they go for lunch with?
1: Yeah, I think John Ivanko is like one of my favorite people like in the D to yeah. C space because he just thinks so differently. And like I have conversations with him all the time. And every time I walk away, I think I've been doing this so long and he just like pokes holes in things like just so well. And he enjoys it too. <laughs> yeah. and I- <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I do like John. He's, uh, he's definitely worth a follow on LinkedIn. His content's very good. And finally, have you got? And we have well, we talked about Hotjar, but are there a couple of other marketing tools, or what kind of these customer journey mapping tools or you know, uh, research tools that you'd recommend
1: people to use? Yeah, I mean, you can get more sophisticated, right? Like Hotjar is the easiest, like most affordable option. If you want to take that up a notch, though, like Survey has way like better feature set and like templates. And they have like pre-filled like survey. If you're looking for like NPS score, customer satisfaction surveys, if you're looking at like market research, they have a lot of that stuff structured. So you can skip the whole stage of like having to figure it out from scratch. Right. And then there's even fancier things like Qualaroo and Qualtrics starts to get into the point where you can start tying together quantitative and qualitative data, and you can start segmenting and you can do fancier things, but really like the tool you need is the tool that you can use, right? So start affordable, start easy, and then like build the sophistication over time as you get better at leveraging uh, customer research.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. uh, You know, I've seen it a few times where the company's thinking, this is where we're going to be in 12 months. So we might as well buy the tool that is going to be useful for us in 12 months, even if we're not going to use it all now. And it kind of, I don't feel like it can make sense especially as a lot of these tools are really expensive enterprise level So end up spending thousands of pounds on loads of features that they're not going to use. And they're only hoping (laughs) that they're going to use it in 12 months time. So yeah, I think, yes, start with,
1: with the basic ones. I'm a big fan of Hotjar. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I've known their team since they basically launched the product. Yeah. They, uh, they came into San Francisco one time and I just randomly met them at an event, but yeah, they've done a lot to like change the marketplace and the perception for like marketers. Cause they've made things easier, not harder. Right. So yeah, yeah exactly.
0: Awesome. Well, there's been uh, yeah, amazing stuff. If anyone wants to uh, reach out or f- find out more, what's the, what's the best way of doing that?
1: Yeah. I think, I think they just find, find Jeremy Epperson on LinkedIn. Like, cause I answer questions for people. I post almost every day. Like it's, this is my passion. My passion is like helping people better understand CRO and get better results out of it, especially when they're new to CRO or it's not really their job. Right. So like, how do we eliminate those roadblocks? And I'm happy to share this is, uh, this is my life's work. <laughs> yeah. So I want to add as much value as I can.
0: <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks Will. Research is key. Every marketer should be doing research, regardless of what your specific job title says, you should be making an effort to understand the customer journey, their wants and needs, and how this can be used to improve the business. Anyone who does CRO knows this, as customer research is a huge part of understanding uh, why people interact with the site in different ways. It helps unlock their anxieties, their motivations to buy, but it's still so important that this information passes to the advertising teams, the retention teams, and everyone else really. There are some super quick ways to at least start getting some of this information. Get an on-site survey set up. It takes 5 to 10 minutes. Read some customer reviews. 30 minutes a week. Get on the phone with some customers. 15-20 minutes per person. With just an hour a week, I promise you'll start unlocking some amazing insights into how you can create a better customer journey, convert and retain customers better. If you'd like to reach out to Jeremy, you can find him on LinkedIn any other podcast questions feedback or guest requests please send them over to will at customers who click.com or message me on linkedin next up i've got alex mckeegan joining me from repeat and we're going to be talking about retention marketing and how there's so much more to it than just email but until then keep those customers clicking